We are studying the Sermon on the Mount. We're in the heart of the Beatitudes. We're in chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 6. Matthew 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. We're ascending the mount upon which Jesus sat, in a sense. And the Beatitudes are the foundation and then the steps that lead to sitting where Jesus sat. Each of these Beatitudes furthers our understanding of what traits and characteristics describe every Christian. And though we're using as an analogy climbing up this mountain, all of these really are active all the time in our life. It isn't that you get one under control and then move on to the next and the next. Uh, you know, so the analogy somewhat breaks down. When you look at Jesus up on the mount, he's a complete package. He, he embodies all of these traits as a man uh, filled with the Holy Spirit. But it does help us to see how these build upon each other as well. In the previous Beatitudes, we've been looking within, examining ourselves mostly. We've seen our poverty of spirit, knowing that we have nothing really to bring to God by which to even begin this journey. Uh, we've mourned over our struggle with sin. Once you become a Christian, you become aware that there is a conflict within things that you want to do, you don't do, things you don't want to do, you do. And then we've uh, seen how we should represent ourselves with meekness towards others. If we have a real understanding of our need for grace, our poverty of spirit, the struggle we have against sin, you can't help but have a proper understanding of who you are and not feel more uh, prominent than other people. And so we treat them with meekness. <clears throat> and um, uh, I quoted Adrian Rogers last week, you know, that if you, if you think uh, meekness is weakness, try being meek for a week. So, can't get that out of my head, David. So. so, this next step describes now an appetite that is present within every believer. Uh, blessed are those who hunger. Blessed, you recall, means something like, oh, how happy and to be envied. And so, it's not, uh, it's, it, it's as if someone were looking at you and thinking, man, that, that is one happy guy. I, I wish I could be that way. Uh, and and when we see it that way, you think, wow, these are not the kinds of things that we would normally think of from a worldly perspective where people would look at that and say, man, look at how meek that guy is. I wish I could be that meek. But the truth is, I believe, and I think we would all concur with this, hopefully, what uh, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, that God has placed eternity in all of our hearts and, and I, re I, I think people are drawn to these qualities, even though they are not the qualities that the world promotes. Uh, and so maybe you'll go through your day all day today at work and nobody will really be drawn to you because you're such a meek individual, you know. Uh, but when the chips are down and, and people need real help, they always find the Christian who embodies these characteristics because there's a quality about your life, these qualities about your life, and they know your life is moving forward with God and, and whatever it is that you have, they need. Uh, so while, while you know, if you, if you did a poll out and said, hey, what, what, what are the traits of, you know, that you would desire, these probably none of these would be on it if you're not a Christian, but this is what it means to be human, really. So uh, God wants to 
be a source of blessing through you as people look at you and envy what you have and are drawn to you. And he says here, you're going to be happy and envied if you hunger and thirst after righteousness. So you want to talk about righteousness, obviously. And the way I like to think of righteousness is simply being right with God. Uh, I, righteousness just means being right with God. And that's an important concept because you are born wrong with God. You're born dead in trespasses and sins. You're born a rebel in a war against God. And you're more wrong than you might think. And I like to explain it this way. It's, sometimes it kind of belabors it a little bit, but I think it is important that we understand uh, these concepts. You're wrong before you are ever conceived because the Bible says sin is imputed to the human race. That's a legal concept. It's really a banking term. To impute means to put something into your account or to credit your account. In this case, it's not the kind of credit you want, uh, but it's credited to your account. Because what we're talking about is that because Adam represented you in the Garden of Eden, when he sinned, his sin was credited to the human race. Uh, he represented the entire human race that would follow. And so every human being, because of Adam's disobedience, is credited with sin before they're even just as a race. People don't like that. Uh, they think they would have done better than Adam. That's ridiculous. You know, he was a super intelligent person who walked face to face with God. Um, but it, the more you don't like that, sooner or later when you get to the part of the gospel where you do like it, because if just as Adam's sin can be imputed to you, so can Christ's righteousness, as he also represented the human race uh, in his coming in his temptations, and in his victory. And so, so sin is imputed to you. And it's important because a lot of times there'll be a, a doctrinal errors that people will get into that you know, you're actually born kind of neutral and you don't become a sinner until your first sin. Uh, and that's just not true. I mean, the human race is sold to sin, belongs to the devil uh, before you're ever even conceived. And then you're wrong at conception because sin is inherited. Uh, sin altered Adam and Eve's humanity. God said that the moment they ate of the forbidden tree, they would surely die. They didn't die physically at that exact moment. They began to die physically. They did die spiritually, and they would have died eternally, meaning separated from God for all eternity. Uh, but something happened that altered their, I, I like to call it the DNA, I guess, for lack of a better term, although I've, I've sat through Bible studies where guys really get into this, you know, the DNA and the blood of Jesus and all this, and it's just whack stuff, you know, it's just crazy stuff. But sin is inherited. So it's, it's been imputed to the race. You've inherited it uh, as, as a child of Adam, as a son of Adam. And then you are wrong in life because you actually commit individual acts of sin. Try as you might to live right, you always do wrong along the way. And, you know, there's people that come to religions based on works, even if it were possible to, to keep the law, keep a law that would get you into heaven, by the time you figure out what that law is, what that way is, you've already committed sins throughout your whole life. I mean, you, you, you know, as a child, at the age of accountability, wherever you want to go, you know, it, it, there's nothing you can do about your past. And so, so sin is imputed. Sin is inherited. You commit individual acts of sin. Uh, the more you see the weight of all those things, 
you understand that it's impossible to to be right with God on your own. You cannot make yourself right with God. You can't earn it, and you can't deserve it. There's nothing you can do, uh, and there's nothing any other mere human can do to help you either. Your wrongness is too extensive for you to really be right with God on your own. So God has to do something to make you right, but it can't be anything out of character for him. He can't... God couldn't just come into the garden and say, well, that didn't work. Let's start over. I'll just forget that you guys sinned. Because there's something about the nature of God and his holiness and his justice. He, he can't just cancel out their sin and not account for it because he said sin brings death. And, and that's just the way of the universe. It's like a, if there's a spiritual law, that's one of them. I mean, it's like the f physical laws of, of the universe, only it's a more potent law. He says the wages of sin is death. And so once Adam and Eve sinned, somebody had to die. Uh, and and um, it was going to be them dying physically and then eternally. But God said, here's a, here's a plan that we formulated before this ever took place. Before the foundations of the earth, he said, we will allow a substitute to die in your place. And so he, you know, you see Adam and Eve clothed with animal skins, probably sheep skin, because God obviously brings a, an animal, a sheep, into the garden or several and, and kills them in front of them. And, and what a horrible thing that would be, you know, to, to have, I don't know how long they were in the garden, nobody knows, you know, whether it was a few minutes or a few days or several years, but... Um, they'd certainly never experienced anything like that. I mean, we've been totally desensitized. We see people's heads blown off on television, and you know, we don't even think about it anymore until you get to a real accident scene or see you know, something real. But um, this would have been horrible. But it, it, God said, something, somebody has to die. Something has to die for, for sin to be dealt with. And then right there in the garden, he says, now this is really just a symbolic death because I'm going to send the seed of the woman uh, who will crush the serpent's head, you know, and, and be bruised. And, and that is the first prophecy of the coming of Jesus Christ, how God would come in human flesh. And you follow it throughout the scripture with the slaying of all the lambs and the Passover lamb and all that until finally John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so God has to do something, and that's the way he has to do it. Uh, it must be accounted for. Sin must be accounted for by death. And so God became a man in order to take your place for the punishment of sin. And because he was a man, he could represent you the way Adam represented you. Because he was God, his representation was meaningful. He was really the only one who could die to satisfy his own justice. And so he can help you. So, very simply, Jesus takes your sin upon himself and pays its punishment. He gives you his righteousness. You are declared righteous by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Righteousness is, in, in a sense, deposited into your account. The same, and, and sin is removed from your account. It's a, it's a nice transaction. You know, you, your sin is canceled out and uh, righteousness replaces it. So now, this righteousness we've been describing would be called salvation. I mean, this is what happens when you get saved. God declares you righteous. There's more to righteousness because it extends throughout your life in the process we call sanctification. It is the practice of that righteousness or being right with God on a daily basis. <clears throat> Though you have a position of being right with God, you don't always practice it. You struggle with sin 
And so this beatitude is really about your day-to-day practical righteousness. It's about your right living. And so now that you're saved, you are to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Living right, which means according to God's word and God's will, is compared to the appetites of hunger and thirst. And really, if I, I was thinking about this, and the first thing that that comparison suggests to me is that this is something that happens somewhat automatically. Uh, physically speaking, I don't need to learn to be hungry and thirsty. They're part of my nature as a human being. Uh, when my little granddaughter was born, there wasn't a big rush to teach her how to eat. You know, I mean, she, she had a pretty natural inclination to be hungry. And, and uh, you know, human beings, we... we you know, you have, to te- you have to teach potty training and things like that, but eating is something you just really kind of comes natural. There's an appetite. It's instinctive, however you want to put it. And so if we're going to use this analogy of hungering and thirst after righteousness, spiritual hunger and thirst are part of my new nature as a spiritual creation in Jesus Christ. That's why Peter could say that I would desire the sincere milk of God's word like a newborn baby. It it was the most normal thing in the world that as a Christian I would desire this, uh, that I would have this hunger and thirst. And I remember as a brand new believer, I experienced the appetite of this beatitude. I'm I'm sure all of us did. Uh, Pam and I couldn't wait to get to church. And we loved going to church on Sunday. And then we would leave church every week and we would go to have lunch so that we could talk about what we had heard in church because it was so remarkable. You know, that that there was a God and he was speaking through his word. I bought a book by Tim LaHaye called How to Study the Bible for Yourself, long before the Left Behind series. He had this classic book, How to Study the Bible for Yourself. And in it, he suggested half a dozen books that you should have uh, for a basic Bible library. Knave's Topical Bible, Unger's Bible Dictionary, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, one-volume commentary, Vines, you know, New Testament words, and some things like that. And my, <clears throat> when my birthday came up, my first birthday as a Christian, I gave all of my family different books that I wanted them to go buy for. They said, this is all I want. I just want these books, you know. Forced my mo- I didn't think about it at the time, but I forced my mom and dad into Christian bookstore, you know, to go find these books and stuff. And then every Sunday... I would get the cassette tape of the message. Remember what cassette tapes were? Yeah. I would get the cassette of, of Pastor John's message, and since I was a salesman and drove around a lot, I could listen to his message about three times during the week. You know, just it would be in the tape player, and it would just keep playing. And um, he talked for about an hour, so I could only listen for about, about three times, you know. So if you get my CDs, you can listen maybe four or five times. But anyway... <coughs> So what, so that, that's, that's just a natural thing. You have an appetite for a spiritual hunger and a thirst for God. So what can happen to appetite? Well, if you have kids, you know it can happen because we tell them this. Our moms told us this and we tell our kids this. You don't eat that. It will spoil or ruin your appetite. And uh, nothing bothers some people more than, you know, you come to the table. Oh, I'm not hungry. Well, yeah, you've been eating junk all day, you know, Cheetos and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I can even make myself sick either immediately or over a long period of time by ingesting improper foods. Uh, and, and there's a whole analogy that you could get into there if you want to about uh, foods. 
Now, because we're talking about spiritual appetites, there are any number of things that can and do compete for my ingesting. Some I cannot avoid. Some of the things that involve my work or other responsibilities. I mean, quite honestly, I, I can't, I literally can't just study the Bible all day if I have a job and other responsibilities that I need to do. And God doesn't want us to. Uh, and, and he's honored if we uh, excel in, in our place of, of business or work or career. And so there are things that we have to do for that. Um, some things so I can't avoid. Other things assault me whether I like it or not. I mean, I, it's clear if you're a Christian that you're under attack out in the world from ideas and ideologies and philosophies and all kinds of things that, that are competing to get in and take over uh, your appetites and sadly, sometimes I choose things over the spiritual food that would be better for me. Uh, and this is an individual concern. Uh, you know, it's easy to come across as saying, you know, anytime you're not doing what you have to do, you should be pouring over the Word of God or doing these things. Uh, God, there's plenty of stuff in Scripture about enjoying life, having hobbies, things like that. Nothing wrong with that. But it is a struggle to keep those things in balance and to know when to quit, when you've gone too far. Having said all that, we really just want to concentrate on proper spiritual diet. And I was thinking about this in terms of why do regular diets fail. Uh, I should just turn this over to Bill now, and he'll tell us. But, but uh, for one thing, they are often geared to a particular goal rather than a lifestyle change. So I want to lose 15 pounds, 20 pounds, so I go on a broccoli soup diet or something, and, and I drop the weight, uh, but then I'm going to gain it right back because as soon as I'm done with my last broccoli soup, I'm getting a crispani from Panera, you know, and, and it just doesn't do me any good. Then there are fad diets that come and go, uh, caloric cleansing and, you know, all kinds of things that you can do to, to drop weight. Diets fail when exercise is not part of the program. Uh, it, it just it needs to go together. And dieting can lead to depression. Uh, imagine being on a diet this week. You know, I mean, have you ever really been on a diet at Thanksgiving where, you know, where everybody's just scarfing down all this food? You know, uh, no, thank you. You know, I'm just, just having lettuce. You know, I'm, I'm on. I mean, it's tough. And uh, so now there are many other reasons and their spiritual counterparts to all of those. Our spiritual goal should be long-term we should think in terms of our entire lifetime on earth, in terms of appetite, not just, and I, I, I don't mean this, well, actually, I do mean it to be funny, not just 40 days of purpose, you know. So, so we're not here, we're here for the long haul, not for just 40 days a year to, to lock into something. Fads sweep through the church. Folks get all excited about them, and they, they come and they peak, and then they go away, and everybody gets back to their regular habits of spiritual uh, snacking. Exercise in the form of serving others in the body of Christ must be involved in keeping a healthy appetite. A lot of people love to come to church, they study God's word, and they just kind of get fatter and fatter in one sense, and, and they, they're bloated and they, they never do anything for God, uh, and, and so they're really not healthy. And then too often we're depressed about our spiritual appetite because we're not really enjoying a total feast on God's word. We're not approaching it from the right perspective. It's not working for us for some reason, and, and that's because we're not really understanding it. So the beatitude, the blessing I'm promised here, is that I shall be filled. It means my appetite for righteousness can be satisfied. It can be satisfied again and again. 
And now this sounds like circular reasoning, but I can be satisfied if I hunger and thirst after righteousness, and I know I am hungering and thirsting after righteousness if I am satisfied. Now, again, though, compare it to food. I'm going to eat tons of my own homemade cheesecake for Thanksgiving. I can't wait. I'll be full and satisfied, but I'll still want more of it when I get hungry again. And it just that's the way the spiritual appetite is as well. And then finally, this morning, in our studies on the Beatitudes, we like to show how Jesus not only taught them, but exampled them. And in the case of hungering and thirsting after righteousness, the Lord said that his food was to do the will of his Father. So he compared, he said, you know, my, my, the, the thing that drives me, my appetite, is to do God's will. It's more important to me than food. So he had this appetite for righteousness, obviously. He often fasted from food or sleep to spend time with his Father all night in prayer. He had this... The hunger and thirst for righteousness overcame his physical appetites. And he submitted to baptism at one point to outwardly fulfill the righteousness required of regular human beings who were sinners, though he was sinless. He said, when John said, I don't, I'm not going to baptize you, he says, do it to fulfill all righteousness. And, and so the Lord examples this for us. God created in you an appetite for spiritual things. We shouldn't bother with junk foods which include the world and all of its vain philosophies, he can satisfy us again and again until he creates a new heaven and a new earth that are only always filled with righteousness where we will be continually filled forever and ever. Amen? Kind of a good beatitude for Thanksgiving, isn't it? As you think about appetites, you know? You can just memorize this every few minutes. Just say, if you drink of that cider, you will thirst again. But Jesus has water for you that will... You, you, you know what I'm talking about. Hey, have a nice time.